the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. To be a child over these next few weeks is to know the most exquisite kind of waiting, impatient waiting. Something is about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. To be a child in these weeks leading up to Christmas is to experience existentially the great spiritual paradox, already but not yet. The kingdom of God is present, but it is still coming. The world has been redeemed, but it is not yet all that it can be or will be. Christ has come, Christ will come again, we say in the words of the old creed. And in the meantime, that's where we all live, in the meantime, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Santa Claus rode into town, albeit virtually, on Thanksgiving morning. Artificial Christmas trees that have been hibernating in the basement have begun to make their way up into living rooms. Some homeowners are feeling pretty good about the fact that they got the outdoor lights up on one of those very rare 70-degree November days. The Christmas shopping has all begun, much of it online this year, and those who perpetuate the tradition of writing Christmas cards have started to locate those lists and are checking them twice. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And yet in the midst of all of this decorating, all of the planning and the replanning that we're going to have to do, all of this ramping up, it's, it's strange because the church actually takes a pause. It puts on the brakes. It becomes reflective. Commercially, it is already Christmas. Liturgically, spiritually, it is Advent. It is a time to ponder, a time to wait and to watch for something that is about to happen. It's that time of the year where the preacher has to field the perennial complaint. Why can't we sing Christmas carols like all of them on the radio or in the malls? To which the only answer is we will. We will, but it's, it's not time yet. And the truth is, uh, the music of Advent is really wonderful. Musicians love it. All of these hymns and songs in a minor key. Advent is the time of the year where, in many churches, the music director and the preacher go to war. The organist wants to play a Bach Advent prelude, wants to sing hymns like, Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Meanwhile, everybody in the pews wants to sing Joy to the World and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the minister is conflicted about who she should listen to. Should she listen to those who pay her salary or to the one that she has to work with for the rest of the year? Not so much of an issue here, of course, because if you haven't noticed, we compromise. We decorate for Christmas and talk about Advent. And we have this wonderfully creative music director who is somehow able to find Advent texts that go to Christmas melodies. 
So everybody is just a little unhappy. To observe Advent is to, to get anything out of it, really, is to deal honestly with the reality that our culture has almost completely lost sight of. And that is that waiting is not just an unfortunate reality of life, but a necessary part of the spiritual life. To live with the experience of already, but not yet. A vaccine is coming, but not yet. A new administration is coming to Washington. It really is, but not yet. A new preacher is coming to Greenfield, but not yet. Retirement is about to begin, but not yet. In fact, waiting is a reoccurring theme in the scriptures, but there it is never just passive waiting. It, it's more like, like yearning. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Make your name known to your adversaries. That prayer, which Nancy read to us today, is over 2,500 years old, from the 64th chapter of Isaiah, Jesus' favorite prophet. And every time I hear it, I think of Walter Bowman, this wonderful Lutheran theologian who used to teach at Trinity Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. Walter was known for many things, but among them was introducing many of us to his favorite book, not a a theological treatise of any kind. It was really a children's book called Children's Letters to God. Walter used to say that you could find every major theological question, every major theological issue buried somewhere in those children's letters, like these. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Joyce. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother, Larry. Or I like this one. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? Jane. And then this Advent prayer. Dear God, are you real some people don't believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. Love, Harriet Ann. I think Harriet sounds a little like Isaiah, don't you? Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Make your name known to your adversaries. So here's Isaiah's situation. It's the 6th century B.C., the Babylonian armies have crushed Israel's armies and have now carried the leadership of Israel, the great politicians and business people and clergy. They have carried them to Babylon to live in exile. A couple of generations pass. And then this amazing thing happens. The Persians conquer the Babylonians, and the great Persian leader Cyrus decides to send those Jewish exiles back home, back across the desert. In the wilderness, prepare the way 
that desert. He sends them back to Jerusalem. They have been waiting for this moment for maybe 60 years, two, three generations. They have been singing songs about Jerusalem. They have been writing poems. They have been telling stories to their children and their grandchildren about the beautiful homeland, about the strong walls, about the temple built by Solomon himself. But when they arrive after this long trek across the wilderness, all that they see is desolation. The walls have been knocked down. The beautiful buildings have been burned. The temple lies in ruins. It makes the once beautiful Woodward Corridor and its surrounding neighborhoods look like the Emerald City. Maybe they should have known. But of course, in those days, they didn't have Instagram or Facebook. All the original ones who told the stories, who had lived through the trauma of defeat and exile, they were all gone. And so the sight shocked those returnees. It must have been like those heartbreaking scenes that you see on the news where you remember people return to their neighborhoods after one of the terrible hurricanes down south or, or one of the horrible fires out west and they're sorting through the debris and the ashes looking for any of their belongings. And it is at that moment that the great poet prophet prays, oh, that you would open the heavens and come down. Are you real? Some people don't believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. You thought it was a new question. No. It is the oldest prayer in human history. Prayed at every occasion of tragedy, every occasion of undeserved, innocent suffering. I would be surprised if many haven't prayed it in these days. If you are a good and gracious God, why did this have to happen? Why a global pandemic? So many people sick and dying. So many people out of work, waiting in these long lines for food and for tests. Why does evil still haunt humankind? Why does the evil of racism still inflict itself on even the best of our institutions, our legal system, our criminal justice system, our education system, even the church itself. Why does the cycle of violence never seem to end? Nicholas Volterstoff, a Yale philosophy professor and a Christian himself, lost his 25-year-old son, Eric, in a mountain climbing accident. This is what he wrote. To the most agonized question I have ever asked, I don't know the answer. I don't know why God would watch him fall. Terry Anderson, one of the American hostages during the Iran hostage situation, a hostage for seven years, Terry wrote this in his journal. I reach so hard to touch God, waiting for something, some acknowledgement from him that I exist, that he's listening, 
help me. You say you love me, so help me. Who hasn't prayed that prayer or asked that question? One of the last days of summer one year, Tristan Tyler Shamby, an athlete, a good student, a strong swimmer, drowned in Lake Michigan. His father, Charles Shamby, told reporters, they say everything happens for a reason. I sure wish I understood why this had to happen. We yearn for answers, for certainty. We yearn to know that God is there and that God knows we are here, that God cares. And of course, it's, it's not just in the middle of tragedy or grief. It can be an everyday yearning. Sophie Burham, a, a, a successful freelance writer, says this. She says, I was happy, and yet there was something deeply missing. It was a deep longing that couldn't be satisfied. I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, is this all? And then thinking, I have everything. I have a loving husband. I have a house. I have children, a career. Why am I still yearning for something else? I didn't know what I was yearning for. She was, of course, yearning for the same thing that Isaiah and those exiles, that Charles Shamby and Terry Anderson and even little Harriet Ann and you and I are all yearning for, for God. Yearning, that same ancient yearning for God to do something. Tear open the heavens. Come down. And then Isaiah's prayer takes a surprising turn. There is a change in tone, offering up a new idea about how God works in the world, how God relates to human beings like you and me. Did you catch it? After pleading with God to do something, after whining that God is hiding, after almost accusing God of not coming down to make things right, Isaiah's prayer makes a startling affirmation. It's almost like a confession of faith. Yet you, O oh Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hands. It is an absolutely unique idea of how God works. God the parent, the potter. Not some powerful force violently tearing open the heavens and coming down, intervening forcefully in human affairs. I mean, who doesn't wish for a God like that? Not God omnipotent power in the universe, but God as of all things, a parent, an artist. I have learned a little bit about parenting over the years. I know now better than I once did that 
love works a lot better than coercion. I have seen on too many occasions, really, how my inclination to want to force certain behavioral outcomes doesn't always work, but how steady persuasion sometimes does. I have learned enough about parenting to realize that there are limits. You cannot finally protect your child from all of the risk and all of the danger. And that the final act of love is really not to hold on tightly, but to let go and to promise to be there in love, come what may. And I am certainly anything but an artist. But I have watched on more than one occasion a potter at work, watched enough to know that it is not about force or coercion, but about gentle persuasion. As that shapeless lump of clay whirls on the wheel, the potter gently touches a finger here or there, and slowly a form emerges. I remember in The Agony and the Ecstasy, Michelangelo saying something like that about these huge blocks of marble that he worked with. He said it wasn't so much creating a form as it was releasing a form that was already present in the marble. That, says the ancient prophet poet, is exactly how God works in the world and in individual lives. Not coercively, but gently. Not forcefully, but lovingly. And so God will act. We believe God will come down, but not in some act of violently tearing apart, but in the gentlest and quietest of ways in the birth of a child. God will come, we believe, not as a military conqueror destroying armies, but in this gentle and yet strong man who would teach the most astonishing of things, that it is better to forgive than to exact revenge. That it is better and happier, in fact, to give rather than to get. He taught this radical, revolutionary idea that the peacemakers are blessed, that the meek and the merciful are God's most favored. And finally, that the best and the happiness, happiest any of us can do is to give our lives away for his sake. And then he will do the most amazing of things. He will seal the deal by going to a cross, making the point with his own body and blood. Nobody ever had reason to think more intensely or poignantly about these things than did Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he sat in his prison cell in Germany waiting for his execution, wondering, I am sure, how a good and gracious God could allow these things to happen, why God didn't or couldn't do something. Bonhoeffer writes this, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto a cross. He is weak 
and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and helps us. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Dear God, you better do something quick. God has. In the event we anticipate in just a few short weeks of Advent waiting, a child will be born. And here's the thing. He will come into this world, into your life and mine, in the most quiet and inconspicuous of ways. Ways that you could miss if you are not actively watching and waiting. He will come with a love that is not coercive, that never forces its way, and yet which is the most powerful force in all the world, for it alone can conquer the human heart. And that love is God's response to our deepest yearnings. Amen.